You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. It is History Day. We continue our series on uh, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod history with the Reverend Dr. Cameron McKenzie. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin for supporting The Coffee Hour. You can find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live uncommon. Our guest today, the Reverend Dr. Cameron McKenzie. He's professor of historical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And I think... I think it's safe to say our favorite guest when it comes to history. We just love sitting at your feet and learning all these stories. Dr. McKenzie, welcome back to the Coffee Hour. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be back and get a chance to talk about some of my favorite stuff. So thanks. Thanks for having me. All right. So we left off in Saxony and and we were talking about CFW Walther and Martin Stefan last time and the, the reason that... Well, what they were dealing with, the the persecution they were dealing with from the rationalists and the challenges that they were facing. And before we broke last time, before we uh, ended the last episode, you were just getting ready to tell us a little bit more history on Martin Stefan and his story. Where would you like to pick up with Martin Stefan today? Well, yeah, let me tell you about Martin Stefan and what's happening to him in Dresden, because it's a little bit different. Uh, Walther's getting in trouble because he wants to preach on the historicity of the fall of man into sin, and he wants to make sure that they've got a, a good religious instruction book in the, in, the, in the parish parochial school. Stefan's situation is a little bit different. He is in trouble both for his methods and for his public reputation. Let me explain. One of the things that pietists in general advocated, and I don't think it was a bad idea at all, and that was kind of small group ministry. That is, instead of just people coming to church for church, uh, you should meet in smaller groups for Bible study, for prayer, for meditation, and even should work at kind of socializing together. Well, anyway, apparently Stefan was interested in this kind of stuff and got into some problems with the law and with his public reputation on account of some things that he had done. Um, as early as uh, February of 1836, uh, Stefan had been at, uh, it was kind of a house meeting, but also a social uh, gathering where uh, they were, um, uh, well, it's, it was mixed company, men and women, um, Stefan was there, not, who was married, was there not with his wife. And um, the police uh, broke in and accused him of, uh, being, uh, of being in a group where they were breaking the peace. Now, it's difficult for us to understand at this point, but there's no freedom of assembly in a place like Saxony. In the post-Napoleonic, War, post-Napoleonic Wars period, they were always concerned about people getting the small groups together and conspiring against the state and so forth. So Stefan's in this group and the place is raided. He is scolded for being here. One of the local newspapers that was critical of uh, Stefan's Christianity had a cartoon picture of him blessing a punch bowl. And it was it, it just di- didn't look well for a pastor to be in that kind of situation when the police had to raid it. He he hadn't done anything wrong other than being there, but it hurt his reputation. And he was cautioned by the police that he should be careful 
about the sorts of groups that he associated with. Okay. Well, now we move a couple years later and we're in November of 1837. Uh, uh, apparently, Stefan suffered from being unable to sleep. And remember, we're at a period of time where there's no air conditioning, central heating is not very good. I mean, it's just not real comfortable living the way it is today. So he used to walk late at night in order to make himself sleepy so they could finally fall asleep. Well, on this particular occasion, he was out walking late at night and went to a like a lodge or a cabin that was in a vineyard. Uh, and again, Dresden is not the kind of city it was. They had those things around, so it was not that unusual. Uh, he was in the company of a serving maid, but again, he's middle class. They have servants. That's not that weird. But uh, somebody had tipped off the authorities about there being some illicit things going on at this meeting, as a result of which they had gotten there first and were waiting to see if Pastor Stefan would show up. Well, Pastor Stefan and the servant girl got there and he thought it looked a little funny. So he sent the servant girl in there on her own to find out what was up. She was taken into custody. She didn't squeal on the pastor but the authorities found him lurking outside. So again, the details are just kind of odd. Nobody said, oh, this was a terrible kind of, these were horrible people that he was going to meet with. But nonetheless, it was scandalous. And it was in the wake of that, that the authorities suspended him from office. And it looked as though he was never going to be allowed to preach again. So it's different from the kind of persecution that Walter and others had experienced. But nonetheless, from their perspective, it looked as if the authorities were just trumping up a kind of charge against their leader simply uh, in order to get rid of him and to suspend him from office. At least that's how they understood it. And that's how um, Stefan portrayed it. Here were the authorities out of control. He had problems trying to get to sleep. He sometimes associated with some people in a social gathering. And that was it. However, the authorities were making it sound as if he was leading kind of a dissolute life. So that's the story of Martin Stefan. His followers rallied to him. And he says, hey, look, if this is what they're going to do to me, this is going to happen to you too. We'd better get out of here. Now is the time to leave. Now, they'd been thinking about this for a while. There had been there, a, a, a Lutheran pastor had actually visited Dresden some years before, and they'd been talking about maybe coming to America even then. And this Lutheran pastor suggested that, well, maybe they should think about going to Missouri. Okay, so that is actually what they ended up doing. So let me tell you a little bit about that. To, do, to go to America was not the easiest thing in the world. What the people did was to kind of pool their resources in order to uh, 
make arrangements with a sailing vessel to cross the Atlantic. And then when they got here, they'd have enough money to purchase property and then got divided up into lots for farming and so forth. So that's the kind of thing that they had to do. Stefan had a couple of important laymen in Dresden who were his supporters, and they helped to organize this emigration society. But when they wrote up their uh, charter, they indicated that they were going to be doing this for religious reasons. Let me read to you what they say in their charter of this immigration society, which they organized in order to move to America. Emigration, its cause and an aim. After the calmest and purest reflection, the emigrants see the human impossibility before them to retain, confess, and transmit to their descendants this faith, the Lutheran faith, in their present homeland. They are therefore constrained by their conscience to emigrate and search for a land where the Lutheran faith is not endangered and where they can serve God unhindered according to the word of grace and where they can enjoy the use of the means of grace ordained by God for the salvation of all men in their completeness and purity and preserve them for themselves and their descendants. So they organize a society for moving to America in order to find a land where they can preach and teach the gospel and its truth and purity. So they're coming to America for religious reasons. You know, most people who came to America in these years were not coming for religious reasons. They were coming for economic reasons. But this is a group that was coming for religious reasons. They could no longer do it in Saxony. They were going to America where they could be free. Well, the word went out. Stefan uh, sent, sent a message around, and I'll quote Stefan's message. The hour to depart has struck. The time to flee from Babel has come. Whoever desires to save his soul should get ready to leave. Walter's brother-in-law was one who left, and he told his people, whoever does not emigrate is no Christian. Fritz Binger, Walter's good friend, he later marries Binger's sister. Binger told one of his sisters, Agnes, about the need to go to America. He said, well, if you want to go down with this country like Sodom and Gomorrah, then stay here. So that was kind of the atmosphere that was a part of this kind of movement. The gospel is being silenced in Dresden. We'll be next. We've got to leave. We've got to go now. Now, this meant rather uh, abrupt leave-takings. Walter preached a farewell sermon, and some of the people fled from the service in tears and terror. One of the pastors, a fellow by the name of Labor or Lober, resigned, but he had not been given his peaceful release. And so he left without any official official sanction to his leaving. Spouses left spouses, parents left children and vice versa. Walter and his brother, his older brother, Otto Herman Walter, they left legally, but they, well, they took along the, a niece and a nephew who were orphans. They were the children of their sister. The Walter brothers were not the legal guardians, but they had, they knew them, knew where they lived, etc. And they took those 
orphans, Maria and Theodore Schubert, one was 15 and the other was 10 years old, without permission from their guardian. And when they got to the, when they got to the place where they were going to leave from was the, the harbor town of Bremen, the, the niece and the nephew had been staying with uh, Mrs. Binger. And uh, the niece and the nephew got on board. Walter and the brothers got on board the ship, but the authorities arrested Mrs. Binger. And so she could not go uh, with uh, with the others. Uh, her son stayed and they had to come some years later after their legal difficulties were um, rectified. So that's kind of the atmosphere that uh, they uh, experienced when they were leaving. Now, I've got some statistics here on how many there were. They were about 700 people. They included, well, they were really top heavy with clergy. There were seven pastors who went and there were 10 men who were graduates of the university waiting for calls who had not yet had calls. So you had really like 17 potential pastors. There were four teachers, a couple doctors, a couple lawyers. There were a bunch of children, about 160 of them. Most of the people were uh, middle-class tradespeople and craftsmen. And, you know, part of their motivation might have been also economic because they were not in professions that had, you know, in the Industrial Revolution, those are the kinds of jobs that were being phased out. Stefan, of course, went. Well, what about his wife? No, she didn't go. One son, Martin Jr., accompanied Pastor Stefan. Seven other children stayed behind in Dresden with his wife. Three of those children were seriously handicapped. They were deaf mutes. Stefan said that they were going to come over later. And I don't know if they had any plans for that, uh, but they, of course, never came at all. And one of the interesting things about Mrs. Stefan, remember, Stefan and company are leaving because the state church is really corrupt. Well, it was pretty corrupt, uh, but nonetheless, uh, Mrs. Stefan was given a pension. Uh, by the state church uh, to help her provide for her children when her husband skedaddled to America. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, isn't that something? That is amazing and kind of incredible and uh, very dramatic how that all went down. And I want to hear more about this. We need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Sarah Golseth. I'm Andy Bates. At Concordia University, Wisconsin, we believe you were created for a reason, to use your God-given gifts to help others, to live a life of self-sacrifice in a me-first world, to live a life that's uncommon. Whether you're taking one of 50-plus online programs or learning with us in person on the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll be equipped to make an uncommon impact. Learn more at cuw.edu. Concordia University, Wisconsin. Live uncommon. Showing support for KFUO is now easier than ever. You can sport a KFUO shirt, swag, or even socks by visiting our online store. Go to kfuo.org slash store and order high-quality KFUO-branded merch. You no longer need to wait for our annual share for a chance to show your KFUO spirit. Visually share and wear this ministry out in the world by checking out our selection. Every purchase helps to support our proclamation of Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Go to kfuo.org slash store. Dun, dun, dun. 
Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Sarah Golseth. I'm Andy Bates. We're talking with Dr. Cameron McKenzie from Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne about the Lutheran immigration from Saxony to America. And we're in the midst of their dramatic exit. I know I did not realize how quick everything was and, and how how everything pulled together for the people that left. Can you tell us a little bit more about the people that were leaving and that process of getting all 700 of those people onto the boats, the boats that they took, all of that, the travel plans? Sure. Uh, now, I've said it quickly, but this is a matter of uh, months that they're taking to do all of this, okay? And so uh, the pastors... Uh, you have to get permission to leave the country. This is not a uh, freedom of a movement, again, the way we're used to in our modern American society. Now, there's a lot less personal freedom in this period uh, than there is today. And so one of the things you have to do is get permission to leave. And so that's going to take time. And if there are any legal problems, that's going to take even more time. And so, for example, Pastor Stefan, he's going to have to get special permission to leave because he's still... He still has a legal case proceeding against him before he can leave. So this takes months to get this arranged. And what they do in those months after they're convinced they have to leave is they've got to settle up their own affairs. People who own businesses have to sell those businesses. The money has to be pooled. The leaders of the immigration movement have to figure out how they're going to get from wherever they are to the port city of Bremen. And then in Bremen, they're going to have to make arrangements with ship owners uh, to basically rent the ship for passage across to America. And in the case of a group this large, they end up uh, renting five ships that are going to set out from Bremen. And they're going, they're going at wintertime, which always strikes me as kind of miserable. The first, the first of the five ships leaves in November of 1838, and it will arrive in New Orleans in January of 1839. So they kind of take the southern route. Here's kind of an interesting and sad fact. Uh, one, of, one of the ships was lost at sea. This was the Amalia. And all the passengers and all the goods on that ship went down and were never heard from, heard from again. Now, as they are traveling, the leaders... And remember, the leaders include the clergy and a handful of uh, leading laymen. They have to think about what they're going to do when they get here. Now, they know they want to go up the Mississippi, go to St. Louis. And at St. Louis, they'll kind of figure out what their options are for uh, settling uh, in in Missouri, because that's that's where they're going. But what are they going to do with the church? Well, while on board... One of the ships, the ship on which uh, Pastor Stefan is traveling, they, well, Stefan basically writes it. It's called a Declaration of Submission. Uh, And this was a way of establishing the church in America under the leadership of Stefan as their bishop. And the pastors on board, the lay leaders on board sign that. And when they get to New Orleans, the others, as they arrive and gather, they likewise all sign this and establish themselves as a, well, both a colony and a church, and the head of which is their bishop, Martin Stefan. Now, we shouldn't be too surprised that that's the kind of church that they established. Uh, If you don't have the modern experience of church that we have, of a church in a free society 
that where membership is voluntary, but instead you're just looking at church history about how the church has been structured and what are you going to do when you have to kind of establish a church. The idea of having a bishop who's chosen by the clergy would be, I think, a pretty kind of natural option for people like this. So that's what they did. Uh, They established an Episcopal form of church government where the clergy would choose the bishop and the bishop then would be ultimately responsible for both the church and then uh, the uh, colony itself. So that's done in New Orleans. Bishop Stefan is now their bishop. They hire, I guess they'd be steamboats to take them up the Mississippi and they land and finally they're all together. Well, there are a few who stay in New Orleans, but they're basically in St. Louis and now they have to figure out what to do. Well, things cost them actually kind of more than they had thought, I guess. And so they don't have a lot of money, but they have enough money to buy some property. And they look at various lots and finally settle upon Perry County in Missouri, which is, you know, like like 100 miles down the Mississippi, south toward New Orleans again. And they purchased that for, I guess it was about $10,000. They get 5,000 acres, and most of the men in the congregation go down there quickly. This is all now in the spring of 1839 in order to start clearing the land and create farms, create a little settlement down there in Perry County. Interestingly, some of the folks don't go down there because they have found that in St. Louis, they could get some jobs and they could use some of the tools and skills that they had known from the old country. And so you get the establishment of the first Lutheran church west of the Mississippi. And that, of course, is today we know it as Trinity Lutheran Church in St. In St. Louis. So we get the establishment of the first church in St. Louis. Most of the men go down to Perry County. Stefan goes down to Perry County, and they're going to clear the land, and they're going to start putting up buildings, divide into farms, and get ready to go. All right. Everything is working okay. People are a little concerned about the fact that they're running out of money, and there is some grumbling about that. But nonetheless, we'd say it's a pretty stable situation. That is until May 5th, 1839, because what happens then? Well, the pastors probably weren't that handy at clearing land anyway. For the most part, state of St. Louis, I'm probably speaking from personal experience here. my wife does all the gardening, but it ain't. <laughs> so, uh, pastor, pastor, now I, I have to say something here for any relatives who might be listening. My wife is a descendant of Pastor Lober. Now, this is L O umlaut B E R, and it's pronounced differently. It could be Labor, but my wife's branch of the family it says Lober. And so in deference to her, that's the pronunciation that I'm going to use in this radio broadcast, okay? All right. So Pastor Lober preached a sermon on May 5th, 1839, and it was a very effective sermon because later that afternoon, two women, unbeknownst to each other, they hadn't talked this together about this, they came to Pastor Lober for private confession and absolution. Well, what sin were they confessing? 
each of them was confessing to sexual immorality with Bishop Stefan. Subsequently, other statements from other women were forthcoming. Some were confessions of similar misdeeds. Others were confessions of how Stefan had failed to seduce them. Several of these women were willing to repeat these accusations under oaths. Well, Pastor Lober was shocked, knew he had to do something about it. He consulted other clergy who were there in St. Louis, as well as a couple of the laymen who were leaders of the settlement and colony. And their decision was that they were going to have to confront Pastor Stefan. They sent CFW Walter down to Perry County to let the folks there know that something big was going to happen. And it did. Just a couple of weeks later, the bulk of the St. Louis people made it to Perry County. Pastor Stefan was told about the charges against him and the evidence against him. He refused to admit that he had been had done anything wrong. Um, uh, and so the day of confrontation came to an end. Pastor Stefan, not saying he'd done anything wrong, but the men of the congregation of the settlement were increasingly convinced that he had done something wrong. And of course, remember what we had said about the accusations back in Dresden. You know, at that time, they had pretty much convinced themselves that these accusations were totally phony and there was nothing bad going on. But now when similar and worse accusations are presented here in America, it made them think, you know, probably there was something to those accusations back in Dresden. And indeed, there probably was. So. Oh, I mean, I I won't go into details about that, but there were other charges that were being made against Stefan back in in Dresden. At any rate, so the day comes to an end. Pastor Stefan is stubborn, and and, and this is kind of a horrible thing, but some of the men in the congregation that night took whips and started beating on uh, the, the walls of the log cabin at which Stefan was sleeping, so just to let him know that his, his time there in Perry County was numbered. So the next day, they reached an agreement. Pastor Stefan would leave. He would surrender all claims to the settlement. Because remember, as bishop, he was the head man and probably legally had rights to the money and property and everything. Well, he would surrender all of that in exchange for $100. That's not a huge amount of money in those days, but it is money that you can do something with. And they also gave him free passage across the Mississippi, Uh, put him in a rowboat, and somebody rowed him across and dropped him off in Illinois. And there he continued to minister to Germans until his death in 1846. Uh, he He was the initial pastor, and I'm not going to remember the name of the church. It's a Missouri Synod church. It's in Prairie, Missouri, Southern Missouri. Is there a, is there a Red Bud or Rosebud, Illinois? I think it is it Red Bud. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. it, it, this prairie is not far from Redbud. So you can, you can go and you can visit that church today. And in their church cemetery, they have a little uh, monument to their first pastor, Martin Stefan. So that's, that's the story of Martin Stefan. At one point, he fell ill. Pastor Lober went to visit him, but he refused to admit that he had done anything wrong. Upon his death, uh, his um, housemaid, and this is kind of interesting too, his name, her name was Louise Gunther. Uh, she um, did not go with him, but uh, sometime later, she left Perry County uh, to meet up with him again and stayed with him until, she, until he died. And then she came back to the colony and she had to repent of her sins before she was admitted back in. So there was kind of a, a little bit of, oh, you know, suggestive evidence from Louise that Pastor Stefan had been what he was accused of being. So that is the, that is the story of Pastor Stefan. Wow. Wow, that's right. Yeah. I'm sorry. So, uh, so where are we going to pick up next time? Well, we're still not quite done with the Saxons in Missouri. They go through a rough period of time and have to kind of get their act together. They felt betrayed. Uh, Just think about it. Those people who went down in the Atlantic on the Amalia, they've been brought over over really kind of under false pretenses. And so there's a lot of guilt that goes on. And we need to talk a little bit about that. I don't think it'll take us the whole period, but then we'll we'll move to... uh, Winnikin and his mission in Midwest America. Very good. Well, I am enjoying this history series. Thank you so much, Dr. McKenzie, for spending time with us and for being our guest on the Coffee Hour today. Well, you're very welcome. I, I really enjoy it too. So thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support the Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you. Anytime. Anywhere. Anywhere.